and welcome to our podcast on understanding lowflation. Today, we'll be exploring the phenomenon of persistently low inflation in many countries since the financial crisis of 2008, which the International Monetary Fund has dubbed lowflation. Despite the Federal Reserve's adoption of a 2% inflation target, both core and headline measures of PCE inflation have remained significantly below this. This has led to concerns about the effectiveness of monetary policy in stimulating economic growth and achieving price stability. So, what is lowflation, and why has it become such a persistent problem in the global economy? Lowflation refers to a situation where inflation rates remain persistently low, despite efforts by central banks to stimulate economic growth and achieve price stability. This can be caused by a variety of factors, including weak demand, excess capacity, and low productivity growth. In the case of the United States, lowflation has been driven by a combination of factors, including slow wage growth, low oil prices, and a strong dollar. One of the key challenges of lowflation is that it can lead to a vicious cycle of weak demand and low growth. When inflation rates are low, consumers and businesses may delay spending and investment decisions in the hope that prices will fall further in the future. This can lead to a decline in economic activity, which in turn can further depress inflation rates. This can create a self-reinforcing cycle of weak demand and low growth, which can be difficult to break out of. So, what can be done to address lowflation? One approach is for central banks to adopt more aggressive monetary policies, such as negative interest rates or quantitative easing. However, these policies can have unintended consequences, such as asset price bubbles or financial instability. Another approach is for governments to adopt more expansionary fiscal policies, such as tax cuts or increased government spending. This can help to stimulate demand and boost economic growth, which in turn can help to raise inflation rates. In their article, David Andolfato and Andrew Spiewak explore the role of fiscal policy in determining long-run inflation. They argue that fiscal policy can play a critical role in shaping inflation expectations, which in turn can influence actual inflation rates. For example, if consumers and businesses expect that the government will pursue a more expansionary fiscal policy in the future, they may be more willing to spend and invest today, which can help to boost demand and raise inflation rates. Overall, the phenomenon of lowflation is a complex and multifaceted problem, which requires a coordinated response from both monetary and fiscal policymakers. In addition, it is important to recognize that the causes of lowflation can vary across different countries and regions, and that there is no one-size-fits-all solution to this problem. Nevertheless, by understanding the underlying drivers of lowflation and adopting appropriate policy responses, policymakers can help to promote economic growth and stability, and ensure that inflation rates remain within their target range. In conclusion, lowflation is a persistent problem in the global economy which requires a coordinated response from both monetary and fiscal policymakers. By adopting appropriate policy responses, policymakers can help to promote economic growth and stability and ensure that inflation rates remain within their target range. Thank you for listening to our podcast on Understanding Lowflation, and we hope that you found this discussion informative and thoughtful.
Hello, and welcome to this podcast on pork barrel politics and polarization in the United States. Today, we will be discussing the impact of political polarization on effective governance and economic performance in the country. Political polarization refers to the increasing ideological divide between political parties and their supporters. This divide has been growing in the United States for several decades, and it has led to a number of negative consequences for the country. One of the most significant consequences is legislative gridlock, which occurs when political parties are unable to work together to pass important legislation. This gridlock can lead to a lack of progress on important issues, such as health care, education, and infrastructure. One of the key drivers of political polarization in the United States is pork barrel politics. Pork barrel politics refers to the practice of politicians using government funds to benefit their own districts or states. This practice has been around for centuries, but it has become more prevalent in recent years. The problem with pork barrel politics is that it creates a system of incentives that encourages politicians to focus on their own interests rather than the interests of the country as a whole. One of the most common forms of pork barrel politics is earmarks. Earmarks are provisions in legislation that direct funds to specific projects or programs. These earmarks are often inserted into bills at the last minute without any public debate or scrutiny. Earmarks have been used to fund a wide range of projects, from bridges and highways to museums and parks. The problem with earmarks is that they create a system of incentives that encourages politicians to focus on their own interests rather than the interests of the country as a whole. Politicians who are able to secure earmarks for their districts or states are often seen as effective and successful, even if the earmarks are not in the best interests of the country as a whole. This creates a system of incentives that encourages politicians to focus on their own interests rather than the interests of the country as a whole. In recent years, there has been a growing movement to ban earmarks. In 2011, Congress passed a ban on earmarks, which was intended to reduce the influence of pork barrel politics in the legislative process. However, the ban has not been entirely effective, and there are still many ways for politicians to direct funds to their own districts or states. The impact of political polarization and pork barrel politics on the United States has been significant. It has led to a lack of progress on important issues, such as health care, education, and infrastructure. It has also contributed to a growing sense of frustration and disillusionment among the American people, who feel that their elected officials are more interested in their own interests than in the interests of the country as a whole. To address these issues, there are a number of potential solutions that have been proposed. One solution is to reform the legislative process to make it more transparent and accountable. This could include measures such as requiring all bills to be posted online for a certain period of time before they are voted on, or requiring all earmarks to be publicly disclosed. Another solution is to reduce the influence of money in politics. This could include measures such as public financing of campaigns or stricter limits on campaign contributions. Ultimately, the key to addressing political polarization and pork barrel politics in the United States is to create a political culture that values compromise and cooperation over partisanship and self-interest. This will require a concerted effort from politicians, the media, and the American people themselves. In conclusion, 
political polarization and pork barrel politics are significant challenges facing the United States today. They have led to a lack of progress on important issues and have contributed to a growing sense of frustration and disillusionment among the American people. However, there are solutions to these problems, and it is up to all of us to work together to create a political culture that values compromise and cooperation over partisanship and self-interest. Thank you for listening to this podcast on pork barrel politics and polarization in the Hello and welcome to today's episode of our podcast. Today we'll be discussing an interesting topic that affects us all, inflation. Specifically, we'll be exploring how globalization has impacted inflation dynamics in the United States. Inflation is a term that refers to the rate at which prices for goods and services increase over time. It's a measure of the general level of prices in an economy and is often used as an indicator of economic health. Inflation can be caused by a variety of factors, including changes in the money supply, shifts in consumer demand, and changes in production costs. One way that economists have historically tried to understand inflation is through the Phillips Curve Framework. This framework suggests that there is a trade-off between economic slack, that is the difference between actual and potential output, and inflation. When there is a lot of slack in the economy that is high unemployment, inflation tends to be low. Conversely, when the economy is operating at or near full capacity, inflation tends to be higher. However, in recent years, this relationship between slack and inflation has broken down. Despite low unemployment rates, inflation has remained stubbornly low. This has led economists to question the usefulness of the Phillips Curve Framework and to explore alternative explanations for inflation dynamics. One possible explanation is that globalization has played a larger role in inflation dynamics than previously thought. As the global economy has evolved, with increased trade flows, emerging markets and supply chains, companies have had to adjust their pricing decisions and workers have had to adjust their wage demands. These changes have affected inflation dynamics in ways that are not captured by the traditional Phillips Curve framework. In her article, Kristen J. Forbes explores this idea in depth. She argues that the missing component in our understanding of inflation dynamics is a more comprehensive treatment of globalization. By explicitly including global parameters in our inflation frameworks, we can better understand how changes in the global economy are affecting inflation. For example, changes in commodity and oil markets, exchange rate movements, and patterns of production can all have an impact on inflation. By incorporating these factors into our models, we can gain a more nuanced understanding of inflation dynamics and make more accurate predictions about future inflation rates. Of course, this is a complex topic, and there are many factors at play. Forbes' article provides a detailed analysis of the issues involved and presents empirical evidence to support her argument. She concludes that a better incorporation of the roles of Shanghai, Saudi Arabia, and supply chains 
can go some way toward improving our understanding of recent inflation dynamics. Overall, the article provides a thought-provoking analysis of the challenges facing economists as they try to understand inflation dynamics in the modern global economy. It highlights the need for more comprehensive models that take into account the complex interplay between domestic and global factors. As consumers, investors, and policymakers, it's important for us to have a basic understanding of inflation and how it affects our lives. By exploring the impact of globalization on inflation dynamics, we can gain a deeper understanding of the forces that shape our economy and make more informed decisions about our financial futures. That's all for today's episode of our podcast. We hope you found this discussion informative and thought-provoking. Join us next time as we explore another fascinating topic in economics Hello and welcome to this episode of our podcast, where we will be discussing the revisions of aggregate hours worked and their implications for the Europe-USA hours gap. This is an important topic that affects not only the economic policies and research in these regions, but also the daily lives and well-being of millions of workers and families. So, what is the Europe-US hours gap and why does it matter? Simply put, it refers to the difference in the average hours worked per employed person between Europe and the United States. Historically, Europe has had shorter working hours and more generous social benefits than the U.S., which has been seen as a trade-off between productivity and quality of life. However, recent data revisions have challenged this conventional wisdom and raised new questions about the accuracy and comparability of the measures of hours worked. The authors of this PDF article, Bick, Bregeman, and Fuchs Schnell examine the revisions of the measures of hours worked by the OECD and the Total Economy Database Data Day and their implications for the Europe-US hours gap. They find that the revisions have significantly increased the estimates of hours worked in Europe and narrowed the gap with the US in particular. The revisions show that the previous estimates of the hours gap were overstated by up to 30% and that the gap has been declining since the 1990s what are the reasons behind these revisions, and how do they affect the validity and reliability of the data? The authors explain that the revisions are due to several factors, including changes in the definitions and coverage of employment, improvements in the quality and availability of data, and adjustments for seasonal and cyclical variations. They argue that these revisions are necessary to provide more accurate and consistent measures of hours worked across countries and over time, However, they also acknowledge that the revisions may introduce some biases and uncertainties, such as the potential underestimation of part-time and informal work in some countries. What are the implications of these revisions for policy and research on the Europe-US? Hours Gap The authors suggest that the revisions challenge the previous assumptions and conclusions about the hours gap and call for a more nuanced and dynamic approach to understanding the differences and similarities in working hours between Europe and the U.S. They also highlight the importance of considering the broader context and factors that influence the choices and preferences. In conclusion, 
The revisions of aggregate hours worked, and their implications for the Europe-US hours gap are a complex and evolving issue that requires careful analysis and interpretation. While the revisions have narrowed the gap and challenged some of the previous assumptions, they also raise new questions and challenges for policymakers and researchers. Ultimately, the goal should be to promote a healthy and sustainable balance between work and life, and to ensure that workers have access to decent and fulfilling jobs that meet their needs and aspirations. Thank you for listening to this episode, and we hope you found it informative and thought-provoking. Hello and welcome to our podcast on gauging market responses to monetary policy. Communication. In this episode, we will be discussing the importance of clear and concise communication of monetary policy and how it affects key financial market variables. First, let's start with the basics. The Federal Reserve is the central bank of the United States and its primary goal is to promote maximum employment, stable prices, and moderate long-term interest rates. To achieve these goals, the Fed uses a variety of tools, including setting the federal funds rate, which is the interest rate at which banks lend to each other overnight. Now, you may be wondering how communication plays a role in all of this. Well, the Fed's decisions and actions can have a significant impact on financial markets, and clear communication of its policies and expectations can help reduce uncertainty and promote stability in these markets. For example, if the Fed announces that it plans to raise interest rates in the near future, this can cause bond yields to rise and stock prices to fall. However, if the Fed clearly communicates its reasoning behind this decision and its expectations for future rate hikes, this can help prevent a more severe market reaction. In recent years, the Fed has placed a greater emphasis on transparency and communication, with the goal of improving market understanding of its policies and reducing uncertainty. This has included more frequent press conferences and the publication of detailed policy statements and economic projections. However, as our PDF file points out, there is still some debate among economists about the optimal level and type of communication from central banks. Some argue that more communication is always better, while others suggest that too much communication can actually lead to confusion and market volatility. So, what can we learn from all of this? Well, as investors and consumers, it's important to pay attention to the Fed's communication and understand how it may impact financial markets and the broader economy. It's also important to recognize that there is still some uncertainty and debate around the optimal level and type of communication from central banks. Overall, clear and concise communication of monetary policy is essential for promoting stability and reducing uncertainty in financial markets. We hope you found this episode informative and helpful in understanding the role of communication in monetary policy. Thank you for listening. Thank you for tuning in to our podcast on gauging market responses to monetary policy. Communication. We hope you found this episode informative and helpful in understanding the importance of clear communication 
in monetary policy. As always, if you have any questions or comments, please feel free to reach out to us. And be sure to stay tuned for our next episode, where we will be discussing the latest trends and developments in the world. Hello and welcome to our podcast on international trade openness and monetary policy. Today, we will be discussing a fascinating topic that affects economies around the world. International trade has become increasingly important in today's globalized world. Countries are more interconnected than ever before, and trade has become a vital component of economic growth. However, with increased trade comes increased exposure to external shocks, such as changes in exchange rates, commodity prices, and global demand. These shocks can have significant effects on a country's economy, including its monetary policy. Monetary policy is the process by which central banks manage the money supply and interest rates to achieve specific economic goals, such as price stability and full employment. In open economies, where traded is a significant component of the economy, central banks must consider the effects of external shocks on their monetary policy decisions. The PDF we will be discussing today investigates the empirical relationship between trade openness and the design of monetary policy using cross-country time series data for the period 1980 to 2006. The author uses the standard Taylor rule, which specifies a link among nominal interest rates inflation, and the output gap to characterize and compare the nature of monetary policy across different countries over this period. The study finds that open economies tend to conduct monetary policy differently from closed economies. Specifically, open economies tend to have higher interest rates and more volatile inflation rates than closed economies. This is likely due to the fact that open economies are more exposed to external shocks, which can lead to higher inflation rates and the need for higher interest rates to combat inflation. However, the study also notes that the observed differences in monetary policy may not be optimal. The author raises important questions about the optimality of these differences in policymaking and whether open economies can achieve better economic outcomes by conducting monetary policy in an optimal fashion. Overall, this study provides valuable insights into the relationship between international trade openness and monetary policy. It highlights the importance of considering external shocks when designing monetary policy in open economies and raises important questions about the optimality of current policymaking practices. In conclusion, we hope that this podcast has provided you with a better understanding of the relationship between international trade openness and monetary policy. As always, we encourage you to continue learning and exploring this fascinating topic. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for listening to our podcast on international trade openness and monetary policy. We hope that you found this discussion informative and thought-provoking. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to reach out to us. Remember, 
Understanding the relationship between international trade and monetary policy is crucial for policymakers, economists, and anyone interested in the global economy. As the world becomes increasingly interconnected, it is essential to consider the effects of external shocks on monetary policy decisions and to strive for optimal policy-making practices. Thank you again for tuning in, and we look forward to bringing you more insightful discussions. Hello and welcome to our podcast on racial gaps, occupational matching, and skill uncertainty. Today, we will be discussing a very important topic that affects many people in the United States and around the world, the racial wage gap. The racial wage gap is the difference in earnings between different racial groups. In the United States, this gap has been a persistent problem for many years. Despite efforts to reduce it, the gap remains significant. According to recent data, black workers earn only 75% of what white workers earn, and Hispanic workers earn only 74% of what white workers earn. So, what causes this gap? There are many factors that contribute to it, including discrimination, differences in education and experience, and differences in occupational assignments. In this podcast, we will be focusing on the latter two factors. One of the main reasons for the racial wage gap is differences in education and experience. Black and Hispanic workers are less likely to have a college degree than white workers, and they are also less likely to have the same level of work experience. This means that they are often assigned to lower-paying jobs, even if they have the same skills and qualifications as white workers. Another factor that contributes to the racial wage gap is differences in occupational assignments this is where the concept of occupational matching comes in. Occupational matching refers to the idea that workers are more productive and earn higher wages when they are matched with jobs that require the skills they possess. However, if workers are not matched with the right jobs, they may be less productive and earn lower wages. This is where the concept of skill uncertainty comes in. Skill uncertainty refers to the fact that employers may not know the full extent of a worker's skills when they are first hired. This can lead to workers being assigned to jobs that do not fully utilize their skills, which can result in lower wages. The authors of the PDF we are discussing today have developed a model that takes into account both occupational matching and skill uncertainty. They use this model to analyze the differences in skill complexity between black and white workers. They find that black workers are often assigned to jobs that require less complex skills than white workers, which contributes to the racial wage gap. Overall, the PDF we have discussed today highlights the importance of occupational matching and skill uncertainty in understanding the racial wage gap. By taking these factors into account, thank you for listening to our podcast on racial gaps, occupational matching, and skill uncertainty. We hope that this discussion has been informative and has shed some light on this important issue. It is important to continue to have conversations about the racial wage gap and to work towards solutions that can help to reduce it. This includes efforts to reduce discrimination, 
increase access to education and training, and improve occupational matching and skill utilization. Thank you for tuning in to our Hello and welcome to this podcast episode where we will be discussing the term premium puzzle and how it relates to macroeconomics and central banking. The term premium puzzle refers to the observation that long-term bonds tend to have higher yields than short-term bonds, even after adjusting for expected inflation. This is puzzling because standard economic theory suggests that investors should be willing to hold long-term bonds only if they are compensated for the additional risk of inflation and interest rate fluctuations. However, empirical evidence shows that the term premium, which is the difference between the yield on a long-term bond and the expected future short-term interest rates, is positive and sizable. This puzzle is important to macroeconomists and central bankers, because it has implications for monetary policy and financial stability. If the term premium is too high, it could lead to an inefficient allocation of resources and hinder economic growth. On the other hand, if the term premium is too low, it could lead to excessive risk-taking and financial instability. Therefore, understanding the term premium puzzle is crucial for policymakers to make informed decisions about interest rates and financial regulation. In this PDF file, Yili Chin and Yunsang Li propose a general equilibrium model that explains the positive and sizable term premia observed in the data. The model integrates the empirical facts of heterogeneous portfolios across households, as found in the household finance literature, and a mean reverting aggregate consumption process, as found in the macroeconomics literature, to explain the real term premia puzzle. The authors argue that the slow mean reverting consumption growth process in segmented asset market mechanism help explain the term premium puzzle. In their model, households have different preferences and hold different portfolios of assets, including long-term bonds. The authors show that the heterogeneity in household portfolios can generate a positive and sizable term premium, even in the absence of aggregate risk. The authors also find that their model generates a high and volatile equity premium with a low and stable risk-free return, which is consistent with the asset pricing literature. Most importantly, their quantitative result predicts a high real-term premium of 1.92% for 30-year zero-coupon bonds, which is in line with empirical evidence. Overall, this PDF file provides a simple and intuitive story that can reconcile the puzzling disconnect between asset prices, equity and term premia in particular, and aggregate macroeconomic variables. The author's model successfully delivers a positive sign for and significant magnitude of the real term premia, which is an important contribution to the literature. In conclusion, in conclusion, the term premium puzzle is an important issue in macroeconomics and central Banking and understanding it is crucial for policymakers to make informed decisions about interest rates and financial regulation.
Yili Qian and Junsang Li's model provides a simple and intuitive explanation for the positive and sizable term premia observed in the data, and their quantitative result predicts a high real-term premium that is consistent with empirical evidence. This PDF file is a valuable resource for anyone interested in understanding the term premium puzzle. Hello and welcome to our podcast on the economic assessment of the costs and benefits of bank capital in the United States. In this episode, we will be discussing the importance of bank capital and its impact on the economy. Bank capital is the amount of money that a bank has available to absorb losses in the event of a financial crisis. It is a critical component of the banking system as it provides a buffer against unexpected losses and helps to ensure the stability of the financial system. In this PDF, we will be exploring the long-term effects of different levels of bank capital on the economy. The authors of this study provide estimates of the severity of financial crises that assume permanent effects of financial crises on GDP, as well as alternative estimates that assume persistent but decaying effects the study also takes into account the specific features of the U.S. financial system to ensure that the results are relevant for considering capital regulatory policy in the United States. The author's results imply larger optimal capital levels than those in previous studies, which is an important finding for policymakers. One of the key takeaways from this study is that higher levels of bank capital can reduce the probability of financial crises. This is because banks with higher levels of capital are better able to absorb losses and are less likely to fail in the event of a crisis. However, there is a trade-off between the benefits of higher levels of bank capital and the costs associated with holding that capital. The authors of this study find that the marginal cost of bank capital increases as capital levels rise, which means that there is a point at which the costs of holding additional capital outweigh the benefits. Another important finding from this study is that the impact of liquidity regulations on the probability of financial crises is not statistically significant. This means that policymakers should consider other factors when designing regulations to reduce the probability of financial crises. Overall, this study provides valuable insights into the costs and benefits of bank capital in the United States. Policymakers should take these findings into account when designing regulations to ensure the stability of the financial system in conclusion, bank capital is a critical component of the banking system that provides a buffer against unexpected losses and helps to ensure the stability of the financial system. This study provides valuable insights into the long-term effects of different levels of bank capital on the economy and should be taken into account by policymakers when designing regulations to ensure the stability of the financial system. Thank you for listening to our podcast on the economic assessment of the costs and benefits of bank capital in the United States. Thank you for listening to our podcast on the economic assessment of the costs and benefits of bank capital in the United States. We hope that you found this episode informative.
and that it has provided you with a better understanding of the importance of bank capital and its impact on the economy. If you would like to learn more about this topic, we encourage you to read the PDF that we have discussed in this episode. It provides a comprehensive analysis of the long-term effects of different levels of bank capital on the economy and is a valuable resource for policymakers and anyone interested in the stability of the financial system. Thank you again for listening, and we look forward to bringing you more information. Hello and welcome to our podcast on how banks have been managing their high-quality liquid assets. In this episode, we will explore the importance of liquidity management for banks, especially in the aftermath of the global financial crisis. We will also discuss how banks have been complying with the liquidity coverage ratio requirement by holding sufficient high-quality liquid assets. First, let's define what we mean by liquidity. In the context of banking, liquidity refers to the ability of a bank to meet its financial obligations as they come due. This includes the ability to repay depositors, honor loan commitments, and settle transactions with other banks and financial institutions. Liquidity is essential for the smooth functioning of the financial system as it ensures that banks can continue to provide credit and other financial services to their customers. However, the global financial crisis of 2007-9 highlighted the risks associated with inadequate liquidity management by banks. Many banks had relied heavily on short-term funding sources, such as wholesale markets, to finance their operations. When these markets froze during the crisis, many banks were unable to roll over their funding and faced severe liquidity shortages. This led to a credit crunch as banks curtailed lending to conserve their remaining liquidity, which in turn exacerbated the economic downturn. To address these risks, regulators around the world introduced new liquidity standards for banks, including the Liquidity Coverage Ratio, LCR. The LCR requires banks to hold sufficient high-quality liquid assets, HQLA, to cover their net cash outflows over a 30-day stress period. The purpose of the LCR is to ensure that banks have enough liquidity to withstand a severe market disruption without resorting to fire sales of assets or other destabilizing actions. So, what are high-quality liquid assets? HQLA are assets that can be easily and quickly converted into cash without significant loss of value. They include cash, central bank reserves, and certain types of government and corporate debt securities that are highly rated and traded in deep and liquid markets. Banks can hold a diverse range of HQLA compositions depending on their risk-reducing strategies. Our analysis shows that banks have adopted a variety of approaches to managing their HQLA portfolios. Some banks have focused on holding a large proportion of cash and central bank reserves, which are the most liquid and low-risk assets. Other banks have diversified their HQLA holdings across a range of government and corporate debt securities, which offer higher yields but also carry more credit and market risk. One interesting finding from our research 
is that banks have been actively managing the duration of their HQLA portfolios to optimize their liquidity and yield objectives. This involves balancing the trade-off between holding shorter-term assets that are more liquid but offer lower yields versus longer-term assets that are less liquid but offer higher yields. Banks have also been using various funding strategies such as issuing long-term debt and securitizing assets to support their HQLA holdings. However, there are also potential risks associated with banks' diverse HQLA compositions. For example, if many banks hold similar types of HQLA, such as government bonds, this could lead to a shortage of these assets during a market stress event, which could exacerbate liquidity pressures. Additionally, if banks rely too heavily on certain types of HQLA, such as corporate debt securities, they could be exposed to credit and market risks if these assets experience a sudden decline in value. Overall, our analysis shows that banks have made significant progress in improving their liquidity management practices since the global financial crisis. The introduction of new liquidity standards, such as the LCR, has incentivized banks to hold more high-quality liquid assets and to adopt more robust liquidity risk management frameworks. However, there is still room for improvement, particularly in terms of enhancing the transparency and comparability of banks' HQLA portfolios. Hello and welcome to our podcast on occupational mobility and lifetime earnings. Today, we'll be discussing the fascinating topic of how people's occupations impact their lifetime earnings and economic well-being. First, let's define what we mean by occupational mobility. This refers to the ability of workers to move between different occupations throughout their careers. Some workers may stay in the same occupation for their entire working lives while others may switch between multiple occupations. This mobility can be influenced by a variety of factors, including education, experience, and changes in the labor market. So, why does occupational mobility matter for lifetime earnings? Well, as we'll discuss in this podcast, the occupation that a person chooses can have a significant impact on their wages and overall economic well-being. Some occupations may offer higher wages and better opportunities for advancement, while others may have lower wages and fewer opportunities for growth. One of the key findings of our research is that people's wages at a given point in time are only a partial measure of their lifetime labor income. This is because lifetime earnings are influenced by a variety of factors, including changes in occupation, experience, and education. To account for this, we constructed the present discounted value of lifetime earnings at 25 years of age, PDV at 25, for each occupation category, using an annual interest rate of 2%. This allowed us to compare lifetime earnings across different occupations and to examine patterns of mobility between them. We found that there are significant differences in lifetime earnings across different occupations. For example, workers in high-paying occupations such as medicine and law tend to have much higher lifetime earnings than those in lower-paying occupations such as retail and food service. 
This is due in part to the fact that high-paying occupations often require more education and experience, which can lead to higher wages and better opportunities for advancement. However, we also found that occupational mobility can play a significant role in lifetime earnings. Workers who are able to move between different occupations throughout their careers may be able to take advantage of new opportunities and higher wages. This can be particularly important for workers who start out in lower-paying occupations but are able to move into higher-paying ones over time. Overall, our research highlights the importance of occupational mobility for lifetime earnings and economic well-being. By understanding the factors that influence mobility and the impact of different occupations on lifetime earnings, workers can make more informed decisions about their careers and financial futures. Thank you for listening to our podcast on occupational mobility and lifetime earnings. We hope you found this information informative and useful. If you have any further questions or would like to learn more about this topic, we encourage you to read our full PDF on occupational mobility and lifetime earnings. This PDF provides a more in-depth analysis of our research findings and includes additional information on the methodology and data sources used in our study. In conclusion, we believe that understanding the relationship between occupations and lifetime earnings is crucial for workers, policymakers, and researchers alike. By examining patterns of mobility, and the impact of different occupations on lifetime earnings, we can gain a better understanding of the factors that contribute to economic inequality and identify strategies for promoting greater economic mobility and opportunity for all. Welcome to this episode of our podcast, where we will be discussing the topic of debt maturity. Debt maturity refers to the length of time until a debt obligation is due for repayment. In this episode, we will explore the factors that determine whether firms and countries borrow short or long term and the optimal maturity of debt. Debt maturity is an important consideration for borrowers as it affects the cost of borrowing and the risk of default. Short-term debt typically has lower interest rates than long-term debt, but it also exposes borrowers to the risk of having to refinance their debt at higher rates if interest rates rise. Long-term debt, on the other hand, provides more stability and predictability, but it also comes with higher interest rates. One of the key factors that determine the optimal maturity of debt is the cyclical state of the economy. During periods of economic expansion, Firms and countries tend to borrow long-term, as they are more confident about their ability to repay their debt in the future. During periods of economic contraction, however, they tend to borrow short-term, as they are more concerned about their ability to meet their debt obligations in the near term. Another factor that affects the optimal maturity of debt is the level of uncertainty in the economy. Firms and countries in more uncertain environments tend to issue shorter-term debt as they are more concerned about the risk of default and want to maintain flexibility in their financing options. However, higher uncertainty does not necessarily translate into a higher price of risk, 
as measured by the excess yield to maturity over the risk-free rate. The optimal maturity of debt also depends on other economic features, such as the level of income and the price of risk. Higher levels of income tend to lead to longer debt maturity, as firms and countries are more able to meet their debt obligations over a longer period of time. The price of risk, which reflects the likelihood of default, also affects the optimal maturity of debt. Higher prices of risk tend to lead to shorter debt maturity, as borrowers are more concerned about the risk of default and want to minimize their exposure to it. In conclusion, the optimal maturity of debt depends on a variety of factors, including the cyclical state of the economy, the level of uncertainty, the level of income, and the price of risk. Borrowers must carefully consider these factors when deciding whether to borrow short or long term, as it can have a significant impact on their cost of borrowing and their risk of default. Thank you for listening to this episode of our podcast, and we hope you found this discussion on debt maturity informative and helpful. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to reach out to us. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast for more informative discussions on various topics. Thank you for listening. Hello and welcome to today's episode of our podcast. Today, we will be discussing an interesting topic that affects us all, inflation. Specifically, we will be talking about a recent PDF file titled Two Measures of Core Inflation, a comparison by Jim Dolmas and Evan F. Koenig from the Federal Reserve Bank of Dallas. Inflation is a term that we often hear in the news, but what does it actually mean? In simple terms, inflation refers to the increase in the prices of goods and services over time. This means that the same amount of money will buy you fewer goods and services than it did before. Inflation is an important economic indicator because it affects our purchasing power, savings, and investments. The PDF file we will be discussing today compares two measures of inflation, headline inflation and core inflation. Headline inflation refers to the overall increase in prices of goods and services, including volatile items such as food and energy. Core inflation, on the other hand, excludes these volatile items and focuses on the underlying trend in prices. So why is core inflation important? According to the authors of the PDF file, core inflation is a better indicator of the underlying trend in prices because it is less affected by short-term fluctuations in volatile items. This makes it a more reliable measure for policymakers and investors who need to make long-term decisions based on inflation trends. The PDF file compares two measures of core inflation, the trimmed mean PCE inflation and the median PCE inflation. The trimmed mean PCE inflation measure excludes the top and bottom 25% of price changes while the median PCE inflation measure is based on the median price change across all goods and services. The authors find that both measures are useful in predicting future inflation trends, but the trimmed mean PCE inflation measure is slightly more accurate. 
The authors also compare how different countries' central banks incorporate core inflation measures into their monetary policy decisions. They find that while most central banks use some form of core inflation measure, there is no consensus on which measure is the best. Some central banks use a weighted median measure, while others use a trimmed mean measure similar to the one used in the PDF file. Overall, the PDF file provides a comprehensive analysis of different measures of core inflation and their usefulness in forecasting and policymaking. It highlights the importance of using reliable measures of inflation to make informed decisions that affect our economy and our daily lives. In conclusion, inflation is an important economic indicator that affects us all. The PDF file we discussed today provides valuable insights into different measures of core inflation and their usefulness in forecasting and policymaking. It emphasizes the importance of using reliable measures of inflation to make informed decisions that affect our economy and our daily lives. As consumers, investors, and policymakers, it is important for us to understand the different measures of inflation and their implications. We hope that this podcast has provided you with a better understanding of inflation and its impact on our economy. Thank you for listening, and we look forward to bringing you more informed. Hello and welcome to this episode of our podcast. Today, we will be discussing an interesting topic that affects us all, the allocation of human and physical capital across countries. First, let's define what we mean by human and physical capital. Human capital refers to the knowledge, skills, and abilities that people possess and can use to produce goods and services. Physical capital, on the other hand, refers to the tools, equipment, and infrastructure that are used in the production process. Now, why is the allocation of these two types of capital important? Well, it turns out that the way in which human and physical capital are allocated across countries can have a significant impact on global output and efficiency. In other words, if we can reallocate these resources in a more efficient way, we could potentially increase global output and improve the standard of living for people around the world. So, what does the research say about the current allocation of human and physical capital? According to a recent study, there is a significant misallocation of both types of capital across countries. This means that some countries have too much of one type of capital relative to the other, which leads to inefficiencies and lower output. Interestingly, the study found that if we were to reallocate both human and physical capital in a more efficient way, the direction of physical capital flows could be reversed. This means that instead of capital flowing from rich to poor countries, it could flow from some poor and middle-income countries to richer countries. This is a simple yet often ignored point that could have important implications for understanding the consequences of alternative integration schemes, with or without labor mobility for countries and regions with different productivities and fixed endowments. So, why is there such a misallocation of human and physical capital in the first place? 
The study suggests that one reason could be due to differences in the marginal returns of these two types of capital across countries. In other words, some countries may have a higher return on investment for physical capital, while others may have a higher return on investment for human capital. This leads to an inefficient allocation of resources, as countries may be investing too much in one type of capital relative to the other. Another interesting finding from the study is that there seems to be a reduction in the misallocation of physical capital over time, but not for human capital. This could be due to a number of factors, such as improvements in technology and infrastructure, that make it easier to reallocate physical capital across borders. However, the same cannot be said for human capital, as there are often cultural and anti-immigrant resistance that make it difficult for people to move across borders. This means that, even if there is a more efficient allocation of human capital that could potentially increase global output, it may be difficult to achieve in practice. So, what are the potential implications of reallocating human capital for the world income distribution? Well, it's hard to say for sure, as there are many factors at play. However, it's possible that a more efficient allocation of human capital could lead to a more equal distribution of income across countries, as countries with a higher return on investment for human capital would be able to invest more in this area and potentially catch up to richer countries. Overall, the allocation of human and physical capital across countries is an important topic that has significant implications for global output and efficiency. While there are many challenges to achieving a more efficient allocation of these resources, it's clear that there is potential for significant gains if we can find ways to overcome these challenges. Thank you for listening to this episode of our podcast. And we hope you learned something new today. Hello and welcome to today's episode of our podcast. Today, we will be discussing an interesting topic that is relevant to all of us, economic growth and the Caldor facts. Economic growth is a crucial aspect of any economy, as it determines the standard of living and well-being of its citizens. The Caldor growth facts, named after the economist Nicholas Caldor, are a set of empirical regularities that describe the patterns of economic growth in developed countries. These facts were first identified in the 1950s and 1960s and have since become a cornerstone of modern economic theory. The Caldor growth facts are as follows. 1. The rate of economic growth is positively correlated with the rate of growth of labor productivity. 2. The share of labor income and national income is roughly constant over time. 3. The share of investment in national income is roughly constant over time. 4. The rate of return on capital is roughly constant over time. These facts have been observed in many developed countries over long periods of time and have been used to develop economic models that explain the patterns of growth and development. In this PDF, we explore the relevance of the Caldor growth facts in today's economic models. The authors of this paper argue that while the Caldor growth facts are still relevant, there are some deviations from these facts that need to be taken into account. For example, 
The authors note that the labor share of income has declined in some countries, which is not consistent with the second. Caldor fact. To address these deviations, the authors propose a multi-sector version of the growth model that takes into account the changing structure of the economy. This model allows for differences in productivity growth across sectors and can explain the observed deviations from the Caldor growth facts. Overall, this PDF provides a comprehensive overview of the Caldor growth facts and their relevance in today's economic models. It highlights the importance of understanding the patterns of economic growth and development and the need for models that can explain these patterns. In conclusion, economic growth is a crucial aspect of any economy, and the Caldor growth facts provide a useful framework for understanding the patterns of growth and development. While these facts are still relevant, there are some deviations that need to be taken into account, and the authors propose a multi-sector version of the growth model to address these deviations. We hope you found this episode informative and insightful, and we look forward to exploring more interesting topics in the future. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode of our podcast. We hope you found this discussion on Economic Growth and the Caldor Facts Informative and Insightful if you would like to learn more about this topic, we encourage you to read the PDF we discussed in this episode. It provides a detailed analysis of the Caldor growth facts and their relevance in today's economic models. As always, we welcome your feedback and suggestions for future episodes. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to reach out to us. Thank you for listening, and we look forward to bringing you more interesting topics in the future.